Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, it's Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I teach for Rocky Mountain University, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, and creator of the Flex Diet Certification. Yes, you are. That's right. All right. Um, we have one little bit of news today, and then we're going to reply to an iTunes request. Uh, there was actually an iTunes review, which is favorable. I mentioned it in weeks past, but essentially it was, can you guys talk more about the how and why of muscle mass gain. And oh, this nice. is, yeah, I mean this is woven into almost everything we do, but it's it's worth revisiting and putting in a nice sort of packaged uh episode, right? Just mass gain. So we're gonna actually two episodes. So today Mike and I are going to talk about the how and why of food and recovery. Uh and then we'll get a clip from Phil. Hopefully he's on the road uh so he can't join us live but we'll get his nutrition tips and I think we can all guess they're probably very straightforward like eat more brownies. <laughs> uh, Lonnie, just you eat more food. Right, and... <laughs> right. And you know it, it, it belies his sophistication, right? It's not like he's a simpleton. Yeah. He's just, you know, simple is not always um, unaware, you know, anyway. Yeah. Um, but okay, first the news. Strength and Muscle Sport News. I only have one piece. This came to me from a colleague. Uh, it's about coffee, right? Uh, listeners know that we like this stuff uh, for all kinds of reasons. But from Fortune Magazine, the author was Sai, S-Y, uh, Mukherjee, M-U-K-H-E-R-J-E-E. So if you want to follow up, that's Fortune Magazine. Uh, obviously, this is science journalism, and a lot of people know how I feel about that, but sometimes it's good, and this is a high-end magazine, so it's qu it's quite good. Uh, essentially, it says, good news for coffee lovers, including those who indulge heavily. Yet another study has found a link between drinking coffee and long life, or longer life. Uh, so this is just adding to the list, but it says, National Cancer Institute researchers analyzed half a million people in a um, UK large-scale genomic and health database. So essentially it's observational data, right? And everybody knows, Dr. Nelson and I have talked about this enough, but observational stuff is correlation. It's not causation, right? So coffee isn't going to cause you to live longer, but you do get these interesting or suspicious maybe connections, right? Relationships from this kind of stuff. So it's an existing database. The study took place over 10 years uh, and it was published in JAMA, Internal Medicine. So very high-end stuff. Uh, the results, it says, were encouraging for coffee drinkers of all stripes. Decaf, instant, um, people who have variants of genes associated with the metabolizing of coffee. Uh, even people who drink up to eight cups of coffee per day. So heavy drinkers, um, 
It says drinking coffee was associated with lower mortality risk over the study period compared to non-coffee drinkers. So again, we're com they're comparing. Um, that's how oftentimes we get things in research, right? We're going to compare two things. So again, they warn that causation is not really, uh, even if it's implied. In fact, Mike, you and I have both seen researchers, they'll look at observational cross-sectional stuff. And if a correlation is very strong, they slip into causative kinds of conclusions, you know. Oh, so yeah. it's hard not to do that. Uh, and I, I, I want to go on a tutorial about this, but I always talk about the ice cream catastrophe, right? The number of servings of ice mm -hmm. cream go up in the summer and so does murder rates. Ice cream is not causing people to murder each other, you know. So there's other things at work. Anyway, um, it says a couple of interesting things here. Um, notable associations were between people who report drinking more coffee and the protective effects against cardiovascular disease. Uh, and they have some quotes in here from various pediatricians and professors. Um, as far as cardiovascular disease, uh, there was a 2014 systematic review said three to five cups per day seems to be that sweet spot. And that's pretty typical of what I've seen. There's sort of a, some studies say it's more of a threshold, like you need to get up into that range. Uh, some of them just say more is better up to about five or six cups a day. This one is actually looking at people with up to eight cups per day. Now we have to define what a cup is, and I don't want to bore people with that kind of stuff, but you know, is it the pinky extending five ounce cup, you know, a fancy serving? <laughs> is it an eight ounce standard, you know, eight fluid ounce cup? Is it the kind of cup that most of us drink, which is probably a 12 or 16 or 20 <laughs> ounce cup? So it depends on how they define it in the different research, of course, but this looks like a large sweeping observational thing. So I'm sure they've given that consideration. The three to five cups, by the way, in that systematic review was from 36 studies with 1.3 million, almost 1.3 million participants. So um, that's why we do this, right? If you say, if it's not causative, who cares? Well, there's a lot of power in that kind of sample size, right? Those sorts of numbers. If things are strongly related, it's very suggestive. Anyway, it says um, coffee may also have protective effects against certain cancers like liver cancer. And of course, that was the, the concern and the controversy recently when California wanted coffee sellers to put a warning, a cancer warning on coffee, which is just stupid, uh, right? Because yeah. one compound taken out of coffee in large amounts alone might in fact have some relationship to cancer. And I understand legally, then they might have to do that. But when you mix it into a complex matrix like coffee with its hundreds of phytochemicals, no, no, it doesn't. Um, I've even seen some very cool data that it reduces mouth and throat cancer risk. One study mm -hmm. even said in smokers, and that's really something, right? Because they're wow. exposing themselves. Um, again, not all studies would suggest that, but, um, and then they go on with more, you know, uh, caveats like the rub with these studies is they tend to be observational. They rely on self-report. You know, they don't control every single factor that could affect the results. We kind of just covered that. So um, anyway, a very large new study out of the UK uh, on coffee and longevity. So uh, I just had something super quick to add to that. It was from the 
British Medical Journal is a coffee consumption and health and an umbrella review of meta-analyses of multiple health outcomes. Wow. My lead author is Pool, P-O-O-L, it looks like. And the short version is they did all these fancy statistics on a whole bunch of existing uh, database, Cochrane database system review, all that kind of cool stuff. And they concluded that coffee consumption seems generally safe within the usual level of intake. They said with summary estimates indicating the largest risk reductions for various health outcomes at three to four cups per day and more likely to be beneficial than harm. So again, nothing earth shattering or new, but I thought that was a pretty cool review and pulling of just a ton of massive amounts of data on that that also agrees with the new study you mentioned. Yeah, I, I think it's worth it for listeners to realize that one new study, even from a lab like Harvard or MIT or some really prestigious group, will not change someone's practice, like if you're a clinical practitioner. And we should have the same standards ourselves. Like you're, we're not going to change our training or our supplementation or our eating on one study. But again, what I'm just talking about here, it, although it was just observational, right, it's not causal, it's huge. Uh, I mean, and what Mike just said, the umbrella. When I hear studies that say an umbrella, so the, you know, a meta-analysis is a study of other studies, and what you're talking about, Mike, there almost seems like impossibly almost a higher level than that. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah, gathered kind of level up, so to speak. <laughs> right, they gathered the meta-analyses. Uh, yeah, so those are the kinds of things where you might actually change your practice right you're like listen this is an enormous amount of evidence it's a study of other studies of other studies uh yeah so you might actually consider that kind of stuff i don't remember the diabetes stuff mike that we saw i think it was around four cups per day there was a tipping point um, yeah in japan yeah, I remember right yeah uh, a lot of that stuff started in, in japan with the anti-diabetic effects and and i've said it before but coffee for Americans at least, and we are not the heaviest coffee drinkers in the world. The Northern Europeans are all over uh, coffee, I think, for utility reasons, for culinary reasons. But here in the States, it's our number one source of antioxidants in the diet. So sad commentary on how little fruits and veg we eat, but thank God for coffee. So, Yeah, and this umbrella review identified 201 meta-analyses. So that's what they started off with. My God. Yeah, that's a fun yeah. thing also about Oof. coffee. <laughs> right? Well, you know, I mean, my hidden agenda, and I have some students who listen, is that I like studying coffee um, partly because it has instructional value. We're probably going to find something happen acutely, right, with coffee. Acute or chronic. Oh, sure. Like, I hate training and feeding studies because free-living people – it's like hurting cats. It's so hard to come oh. to conclusions. But acutely, coffee, an hour after you finish your big cup of coffee, it's go time and you've got hormonal changes, you have cognitive and you know muscular changes. Sweet. Let's let's study that because it's a positive reinforcer for students to say, hey, look, you know, something happened essentially. So Yeah. And plus just with them doing that kind of work in the lab, as you mentioned, it's just more exciting you oh, don't right. have to wait so long to see what happened and then you can kind of look and see differences right away too yeah one of the mistakes i think a lot of students make is the same thing a lot of trainers make just in their garage gyms or their lifting lifting around the country is they they come up with um a notion a hypothesis and sometimes it's cockamamie 
You know, you see some of these people selling books and they've got YouTube videos and they're just full of it. Like they're they're not basing it on literature. If you really base your hypothesis on existing literature, you're probably not going to waste a lot of time and money doing something so randomly explorational that nothing's going to happen. Right. I mean, you did your dissertation work with stimulants, too. Right. So, yeah, yeah drinks. something's going to happen, probably. <laughs> so, yeah, you're right. It's more it's actually more fun for us as well. Yeah, and that's the main reason I did it because one, at that point, there wasn't much data, and then two, I knew I needed to get it published in order to get the heck out of there. I had to publish three studies, and I'm like, oh, if it confirms that energy drinks are on the rather safe side, wow, that's kind of surprising, I would say, to most people in the lay public. Yeah. Um, if it shows that they actually do enhance performance, that's kind of surprising, I would say, to, to people also. You know, and even if they find a positive or a negative, however the study was set up, it's going to be sexy enough that some journal's still going to want to publish it. Right on. It's kind of the main deal is uh, I need to publish to get the hell out of here. No, <laughs> and, and, yeah, and to do that, you need statistically significant findings for most journals, right? I right. mean, that's a sad yeah. commentary. I don't want to get into a discussion about yeah, how yeah. badly we need journals of non-significant findings, but uh, yeah, agreed. Okay, well, we'll probably touch on that just a little in our mass game plan. So if you tuned in for that and you're ready for it, uh, we're going to go to break early here. So we come back. I'm going to sort of interview Mike, and then I'll interject a few things about essentially the Iron Radio plan on building muscle mass. And we're not just going to tell you how, but also why some of the underlying mechanisms. So we'll be back in just a bit. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. 
your weekly fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, guys and gals, we're back. It's Mike and Lonnie, and hopefully we'll check in with Phil here. And we're going to talk about the Iron Radio mass game plan. Um, how and why? I think it's important. I Phil will even say this with training type things. And again, training is going to be a different episode. We'll do a training version of the mass game plan uh, at a later date. Uh, but Phil always says, if I can't explain why I'm doing something with a client, then I'm not really worth my salt. You know, so um, we'll talk about why. Let's start with some of the obvious. Uh, things that have the biggest impact, you know, before someone goes and buys some foolish little testosterone boosting herb or something, uh, the big changers really are things like calories and protein intake. Let's start with calories, Mike. So daily recommendation, uh, how you might split that up across meals. Let's get some calories in these guys. Always thinking about growth. Yeah. Usually I find, I mean, if a guy comes to me and says, Hey, you know, I'm really trying to grain gain some mass. I've been trying to do it. It hasn't happened pretty much 90 plus percent of the time. I would say they're just not eating enough, which yeah. again, I know is an overly simplistic thing, but you know, they're, it's like you're trying to put little, uh, spoilers on the car instead of upgrading the engine. You're kind of doing all the, the minor stuff. Yeah. Um, which begs the question that, well, exactly how many calories do you need? I mean, I've had some people do pretty good at 3,000, which I'd say is probably on the lower end. You know, some up near 4,000, 4,800. Um, I used to use more of the little equations, you know, like Harris Benedict and all the different ones. And I don't know. I mean, over time, if I'm working with someone one-on-one or online, you have the luxury of being able to make changes. And what I do is I just say, okay, if you've been trying to gain mass and you've been pretty much weight stable for two weeks, let's just do a diet log. You know, don't change anything. Just tell me exactly what you're eating. And I'll just run it and look and see exactly where they're at. And then I'll just assume that, okay, this point, whatever it comes out to be, say they're under eating. So they're at 2,800 calories that they're probably just pretty weight stable at that point. So then I'll just slowly start going up uh, from that point. I mean, if it's someone who you know has to be in a different weight class and we really have like a hard timeline, yeah, I'm probably going to go up you know substantially higher than that. Yeah. yeah. Um, or if their lifting performance is just utter dog crap, yeah, I'm probably going to be more aggressive than that. But if it's someone who's you know because some people are still kind of concerned about you know body composition within reason, you know they don't want to gain all you know fat right away. So if our hypothetical guy was that. 2,800 calories, I'd probably initially bump them up by probably 500 or so just to start off. Yeah, yeah. And then I would, you know, see how they're doing there. You know, performance starts going up and they're like, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, not really gaining a whole lot. Then I'm just going to keep, you know, scaling them up. Right. And what I find is from a compliance standpoint, it's a little bit easier. From a behavior standpoint, it's a little bit easier making smaller changes. You know, and then a lot of people are kind of secretly worried, like I said, about gaining too much fat. And you're making a smaller change, so it's unlikely that that's going to happen at all. Yeah, you know, you know if I can, then, if I can interject, just, 
Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that you're partly alluding to, I think, and what people don't do is progression models with nutrition. Yeah. You know, you, like, yep. like when you mentioned the Harris Benedict equation, or I work with a lot of dietitians, they'll say, oh, no, Mifflin St. Jor is Mifflin, the new one. Yeah. It's like, um, there, <laughs> do, you, do you know there are hundreds, you know, yeah. and in practical daily intake, eh, you know, they, they're a nice exercise to go through when you're starting out as a student because you start to understand oh, what affects it. Height, weight, your gender, your age will actually subtract off, you know, your daily requirements kind of thing because your metabolism slows a little. Well, if you lose muscle mass and et cetera. But there's a progression thing here. But also the idea that those equations, they pretend that your metabolic rate is only based on your height, weight, age, and gender and they don't take into account that metabolism is dynamic, right? So mm -hmm. you're an engineer. You know this stuff better than I do. But a car's engine is not going to change dramatically over a few weeks. It is what it is. But we are biological wetware kind of machinery. And we do. Our metabolism goes up and down. So imagine like if your thyroid function falls, that Harris-Benedict equation is now off because it's just looking at your height, weight, and age essentially, right? So – metabolism is dynamic like you i start off with 500 maybe up to a thousand calories extra it depends on someone's baseline like you were saying how big are they yeah. what's how hard are they training and again that's for another day um but uh, i remember when i was trying to gain weight in san diego um i was eating about probably you know, 2,800, 3,000 calories a day when I started, and I did a behavior modification project, and I've mentioned this before, but I tried to eat 4,500 calories every day for oh, eight so weeks. Hard. It is hard. <laughs> I mean, and, and if you're chugging Coke, two liters of Coke, and washing it down with a Big Mac or multiple Big Macs and fries, maybe not as hard, but 4,500 of reasonably I don't like the word clean, and I know you don't either, but real on, food even. on diet, yeah, real whole food, wow, that's hard. When I hear boasts on ESPN about, oh, you know, this or that swimmer ate 12,000 calories a day, Oof. bullshit. I, I don't buy yeah. it. He'd have to eat with a snow shovel and live on the toilet. You know, there's no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's no way, uh, I, I don't think. Again, not if you're going to do it clean, which is why I know Phil likes to quote unquote dirty it up a little bit. You know, like forget about worrying about carbs and sugars and or the fats and the brownies eat the damn brownies you know and he doesn't even count much at all he says what weight do you want to be let's completely recklessly overindulge until you get there and then we'll back off a little you know and so uh yeah i know people do worry about fat gain obviously if all the weight gain is coming on around your midsection instead of across your shoulders and your arms that's probably not good whatever you're doing you know um but that's why monitoring is important but anyway yeah, I like about four meals daily, four to five meals. Uh, so you're talking about literally like 1,000-calorie meals if you're breaking that yeah. down. Uh, so th that's a good-sized meal. So how many meals do you go with, Mike, in a day typically for people? Uh, I usually try to have them get up to close to five just from a practicality standpoint. Because usually they'll have you know something for breakfast, something for lunch. Let's say if they're training later afternoon, which is pretty typical. I usually have some type of liquid meal before and after training, just easier to get in calories, easier to jam them in around that time period, and then something in the evening. So usually most people five. I've had people go up to six or seven. I've had some people at four. 
you know, a lot of it just depends on their, their lifestyle and what they can do and how hungry they are, how much they can eat at once. And, but eh, four to six is probably pretty average, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, clinically, we do a lot of snacks, you know, so the typical thing mm-hmm. in like a hospital is try to stick to a three meals a day and then have like, you know, an HS uh, or a Somna, right, bedtime snack, something like that, or a, a mid-morning snack. And you're right, training opens up that additional window, you know, so you can hammer some calories before and after the gym. You know, there's a lot of research about protein. We can kind of segue into that. Is before weight training better? Is after better? Well, they're both good. And you can cite all kinds of data, like out of Robert Wolf's lab. Old data now, but both are really good. So, and I don't don't know why in a practical sense you wouldn't just do both. You know, like have a little bit of weight gain. Unless you have room in your calories to do it. So you can add other stuff with the protein. So right yeah, here much less limits. Um, a couple of quick points about why this matters. Um, first of all, protein synthesis is energy costly. So there's various estimates. I actually like to use. There's a simple uh, explanation in the Mel Williams Sports Nutrition textbook. But 2,800 calories is the middle range of what it takes to synthesize a pound of muscle. Right. So that that's above and beyond. So. Over the course of a week, that'd be that, you know, 400 extra calories a day uh, to help synthesize a single pound of muscle. Are you going to build a pound of muscle this week? I doubt it. Um, Maybe. Uh, And it depends if you're a beginner or not. But part of it is protein synthesis is simply costly. You need energy to do it, not just building blocks and protein, but you do need high quality protein. Also, all those calories, your insulin levels are going to be higher. There's some interesting data that higher insulin levels, I mean, it's a storage hormone, but it also lowers sex hormone binding globulin and i don't know how you know impactful this really is but i think it's interesting that all those calories they help get your testosterone levels up because if you're low cal you get reduced lh and slightly lower testosterone you can see that in like dieting wrestlers and whatnot and the flip side is the the proteins that bind up testosterone sex hormones they tend to be decreased with high calories so you've got more synthesis probably and more free testosterone if you're eating a ton all the time i'm not saying testosterone is the reason for all that muscle mass gain, a lot of that stuff gets debatable, right, in a normal physiological range. But just some mechanisms for people. Mike, can you think of anything about just sheer calories and the, the mechanism, why they work so well? Yeah, I think a lot of it is also just <laughs> blunting some of the cortisol effects, especially we'll talk later in the next episode about more training. You know, so you're training harder, you're obviously pushing stress more. So it allows you to recover from that. Yeah, maybe you've got some hormonal things. You know, insulin's going to be the opposite of, of cortisol. So you're trying to keep some of those stress hormones, you know, down into a little bit better range too. Yeah. Yeah, so hormonal mechanisms. There's some cool stuff about training. If you train with carbohydrates in you, you have lower, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, interleukin-6, some of these catabolic cytokines, lower cortisol, like you were saying. Yeah, so it all it even blunts the stress response a little bit from hard training. Yeah, so and obviously th- there's… the immune system. And the building blocks too, right? Obviously, they're all those amino acids are the building blocks, like from the uh, that need to be synthesized together and whatnot. The carbs and the fats that you eat—they're not just the calorie source acutely, but you know, muscle glycogen goes up, right? You store all that carbohydrate in your muscles; they become larger. You know, there's some cell swelling, maybe, maybe it turns on anabolic processes right there more locally. There's all these different things happening uh, as far as why. Um, I talked about drifting into protein then. 
Um, obviously, there are different levels of protein quality, right? Animal proteins tend to be complete. They have all of the indispensable amino acids. Plant proteins are usually missing one or more. In fact, the data, uh, like a lot, Stu Phillips will talk about this quite a bit in some of what I've read of his work, but stuff like peanuts um, and soy, they just don't have that protein synthetic effect like dairy proteins do. You know, so whey and casein, whey being fast, casein being a little slower. I like about 40 grams of protein with each of those four or five meals. You know, if you just want to do it per meal, I think that's more practical. But what are your thoughts about protein, Mike, or amino acids? Yeah, I would I would agree with what you said. I mean, if you look at a rice protein, at, you know, 20 grams, it's, it's okay. It's not nearly as good as whey. Um, but if you go up to 40 grams, it's, you know, almost equivalent at that point. So by virtue of eating more more protein, you're going to kind of take care of that effect, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the literature, you know, like the, the book that you obviously were the editor on for dietary is it protein and exercise, uh, 0.7 grams per pound of body weight. Now, those studies, which were primarily uh, Miro, Lehman, Mettler, Wahlberg did one. Uh, Stu Phillips helped with a new uh, meta-analysis and came out to be a pretty similar number. Um, but some of those early studies were actually in <clears throat> people who were on reduced calories. So it was kind of your worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. You could argue and get maybe even a little bit lower from that. So if I've had someone who's just doesn't have much room for calories and their performance is horrible, I may actually lower their protein a little bit and then increase their carbohydrates. But in general, with most people that are eating a lot, I'm kind of the same as you. You're getting like four meals. Four by 40 is kind of my starting point for pretty much everyone in most cases. And if you can get another meal in and you want to add another you know, 30, 40 grams of protein to that, I think you're going to be in a surplus for sure by then. And I think that's fine. You know, it's just yeah. sometimes easier from a compliance standpoint too of, you know, get 30 to 40 grams of protein with each meal. I think you could argue, like I said, if you really have high amounts of calories, you could probably get away with even less protein. You just don't have a lot of data on that in terms of hard training individuals and caloric surplus. Um, but most of the time when people are eating that much, protein usually is not as big of a concern compared to cutting. Yeah. When athletes ask me, do I need more protein? I say, well, how much are you eating? Right. Yeah. And I've actually, that now? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many? Well, or just how many calories are you consuming, right? Because I mean, yeah. all the way back to Gail Butterfield's work and Peter Lemon, which my advisor, um, it, you know, throughout the, I think even late 70s through the 80s and 90s, obviously calories matter. We both know, and we've talked about this before, if you overfeed someone calories, they're going to add a certain amount of muscle mass, even without a training stimulus, right? When you gain weight, yeah. it's not 100% fat. So protein and calories are, are mutually dependent sort of one's the fuel and one's the building blocks and obviously you need both if you want to build a structure right so um yeah that was levine's work from mayo where he took average people who were not training took eight weeks and overfed them by a thousand calories per day and he was trying to look at how much fat they would gain and when you look at the actual data in there a fair amount of them gained pretty good amounts of lean body mass. Yep. And these are people who yep. are not really training or doing anything like that either. Isn't just that by interesting? Yeah. Overfeeding them calories. Absolutely. And you know, when you throw in the training stimulus, and I know listeners, yeah. you probably have seen the same thing that we see, but um, I typically will, will fill up a little shaker bottle of protein or some protein and carbs on my way to the gym. 
And that's something that I wouldn't do as much on non-training days. So it's almost like a scheduled trigger for me, you know, and it could be for you for protein and calories, you know, have a 40 gram, you know, um, of whey protein in a shake, maybe 80 grams of carbs in there. Again, we're talking about weight gain. I like a two for one. I know some, some suggestions go up to four to one carbs to protein in those, you know, uh, peri exercise sessions. Yeah, that, that's a lot. And like you said, it kind of depends, uh, but you might as well, you know, throw in plenty of carbs and, and protein into your workout shakes because that's a, essentially a, a snack or, a, you know, a special window. Uh, and again, I'm not, I don't want to get into a debate about the exercise window of opportunity, but behaviorally, it's definitely a trigger for me. And you can add some proteins and carbs, even some fats in those shakes. Um, and, you know, yeah, it's probably also, also worth noting that m- milk, if you make shakes with milk, milk is very insulinogenic. It really helps stimulate insulin secretion uh, for various reasons. And I think that's probably going to help you, you know, be in a storage mode, growth and recovery kind of mode too. So, Yeah, and people forget that <clears throat> all the crazy vasodilators and all that other kind of stuff they're using that uh, insulin is probably one of the most potent vasodilators that we have any direct control amount. Yeah. So if you're taking in a you know whey protein, which tends to be more insulogenic, <clears throat> a high fast-acting carbohydrate, I like Vitargo. I don't make any money from them, but they've got cool studies showing that it is a very fast-acting carbohydrate that's absorbed. Mm-hmm. I usually go 40 grams of protein, 80 grams of like a Vitargo beforehand. And that also helps with the vasodilation and the pump and the ability to train a little bit harder and all those things too. Yeah, I wish I had a quarter for every time I told someone who was on one of those NO products. I'm like, <clears throat> how about a big scoop of whey and a banana, you know, yeah. a, an hour <laughs> before? Uh, th- that'll help you, you know. Plus then, yeah, you're getting the blood glucose levels yep. up, the, you know, vasodilatory effects. Totally, totally. Um, all right, what about fats? Uh, you know, people often avoid fats, and I don't want to talk about supplemental fats like fish oils because we're talking about gains here with a Z. But so I, you know, I've suggested people put peanut butter just for the fat source, like make protein shakes that way. Some people actually put heavy whipping cream, <laughs> like I know you've mm-hmm. played with that before in shakes. I've done that. <laughs> even oil, like it might sound gross, but even some neutral, fl- like canola oil or something in a shake. I mean, um, getting. Fat. Now, over the years, and I don't have the reference handy, it's on my hard drive, but I, w- I was looking, is there a tipping point? Like, how much fat is too much in a meal? And I found one paper, they were just looking at RQ and, and things like that, and RER, and essentially saying it looks like somewhere around 20 to 30 grams of fat uh, is, there seems to be a, it's not a pure threshold, but there's like an inflection by which maybe your ability to oxidize that is overwhelmed. You know, in other words, I would say if you're going to add fat to your diet, something like 20 or 30 grams of fat, that's certainly not unreasonable across four or five meals, you know, um, something like that. So, because it does make, you know, you do start to think, well, if I eat 100 grams of fat in each of these meals, is that better? Well, it depends if you're putting on weight muscularly or, or around your midsection like we were talking about, I guess. But uh, tips about fats, Mike? Yeah, so an amount that I usually have is a, a minimum for people gaining mass is 50 to 80 grams. And most of us people are going to be closer to 80. And that's definitely on the, the minimum side. 
a day. We talked about, yeah, per day. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So if your fat's super low, obviously testosterone's going to be impaired. Recovery's going to be impaired. Yeah. Even just the amount of food choices you have, even trying to get below 50 grams of fat a day if your calories are pretty high, that takes a fair amount of work. Um, and then after that, <clears throat> just we'll get into carbs next, but I'll look at how many carbohydrates can they take and then kind of what foods do they like? You know, some people, if their carbs are close to 300 and they just need more calories and they can't eat any more food, then fat becomes a really easy way to get more calories in. It's like you said, adding uh, peanut butter, you know, to shakes or oil or coconut oil or different things like that, olive oil to their salads and it's just a easier way to get uh, more calories in. I find some clients just like higher fat foods and that's easier for them. Mm -hmm. uh, some clients don't, mm -hmm. you know, so a lot of it wants to kind of cover the minimums just depends upon their personal preference and what they can kind of do on a day by day basis. Um, there's Hunger. some old data. Yeah. I can't find it right now, but looking at the amount of dietary fat in a meal and then looking at endothelial dysfunction via something called FMD mm -hmm. or flow media dilation. So that was one of the measurements I did in the lab. And the data is kind of, if I remember right, kind of across the board. But there is kind of a point where you get too much fat in a meal. It may acutely kind of mess up with that vessel function. If you're young and healthy, it's, you know, probably going to be not too much to worry about. But it's something I do think about as people get older, if they're really pounding super high amounts of, of fat per meal as, you know, potentially something to think about. Right. I think a, a lot of uh, my colleagues in the past who are dietitians, they still have a very negative view of fat. Um, it's one of the reasons oh, yeah. I did my dissertation with a special dietary fat and uh, you know, proteins and fats are very popular in the sports nutrition world, I think, because, yeah, nobody's going to tell you that handfuls of nuts and seeds, you know, peanut butter, olive oil, avocados, all this monounsaturated fat, uh, generally just good. I mean, the Mediterranean diet, all that sort of thing, you know, whole layer of their food guide just for olive oil. Uh, it, there's other good things in that, like antioxidants and, and whatnot, but um, yeah, definitely. And I... I like what you said, too, about how quickly you can reach your calorie goal, literally more than twice as fast, right, at nine calories yeah. per gram instead of four. Uh, fats are a great way to get those calories up if you're not a huge eater. I tend to think, and we've talked about this many years ago, but if your protein is relatively fixed, let's say it's at a gram per pound, so that's probably excess but, you know, not unreasonably so. If your fat's fairly fixed at a similar amount, maybe it's half a gram per pound, something like that, then carbs are what really what go up and down. And we're flitting back and forth between fats and carbs here because, you know, that's your, those are your calorie sources. I mean, they have different effects on the body. Um, but it, it's worth noting, right? Yeah. If you have a hard time getting to that like uh, 4,500 calories or let's say 4,000 a day for a male. Maybe it's 3,000 uh, calories a day for a female or, you know, low threes per day. Uh, healthy fats are, they'll get you there. <laughs> they will get you there. Uh, but carbs, you said you wanted to touch on carbs a little bit uh, further? Yeah, basically I just keep scaling them up. I mean, in terms of actual numbers, again, it's going to vary depending upon your caloric intake. Eh, 200 is a very min, you know, most people 250, 300, 
I mean, I've had some people go as high as you know even over 400 per day. Um, most people at that point will start <clears throat> trading fat and things of that nature. But I look at carbs, and then I also look at obviously their their weight gain, and I also look at their performance. You know, when we talk in the training session, if I can take them from three days a week to four days a week, and they're recovering and able to do good, you know, high quality productive work, then cool. So in my opinion, that's going to be even better. Maybe they could go to five days, you know, and I think by having more carbohydrates and more fuel, I've just noticed that that tends to make it easier. If you look at an extreme, like a, a CrossFit athlete, or even like, we're not talking about endurance, but some endurance athletes who are burning just through a ton of calories, pretty much all of them that do well are on much higher carbohydrates. So I think we're hopefully getting over the stigma that carbs are bad. So I've seen a few people, not so much recently, but in the past where their protein was sky high, their fat was sky high, and their carbs are like 120 a day. And they're like, I'm, I'm doing my lean bulk. I'm like, well, how's that working for you? I don't know. My performance isn't so good. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, let's just lower the protein a little bit back to a, a normal range, drop the fat a little bit and increase carbs and a lot of times, even by not changing calories, they're like, oh, my performance is so much better, and they start making progress again, probably because the stimulus was being impacted. So, Right. Now, you know, a quick um, – we'll get to this in a little bit, but if your sleep is very poor, I've seen some very cool yeah. data that you become a poor carbohydrate metabolizer, and, you know, you've done yep. a ton of stuff with that metabolic flexibility and using metabolic yeah. car and RER and – uh, yeah, so getting adequate sleep is really important to this kind of thing. Let me give someone, some, everybody some ballpark numbers when it comes to the macros and um, calorie calories per day, as it were. So let's. this is what I, I used to do roughly uh, when I was always trying to gain weight all the time. I'm sort of past that in my career now. But So I would do about a gram per pound of protein. So 200 grams of protein times four, that's 800 calories. I would do 500 grams of carbs a day, four to 500. So let's go 500, again, times four calories in each of those grams. That's 2,000 calories from the carbs. And then 100 grams of fat per day. So times nine calories in a gram, that's 900 calories from fat. So we have 800 calories from protein, 2,000 from the carbs, 900 from the fat. That's 3,700 calories. That's going to make most people gain some weight. And I think in a reasonable range, right? That's not absurd. Yeah. Um, those numbers are, are reasonably balanced. There obviously there's more carbs there than um, anything else from a calorie and a gram perspective, because again, that's what goes up and down a lot uh, for you know energy, um, glycogen, you know, nice full muscles getting a pump, the whole deal. So uh, just you know, nice round macros and calorie kind of suggestion there. We already yeah. talked about and on days that don't train. Would you have them go lower than that? Do you do like a zigzag or stagger calories at all? Or you just try to go for just hardcore consistency to keep them the same every day type plan? Yeah. Well, you know, I, as I alluded to before, I tend not to get that pre post workout nutrition on the days that I yeah. don't do it, you know, so I don't have that particular shake. So there's that variance. Also, if you, if the calories are constant, let's say at that 3,700 every day, if the, if the workout's not there, you're in more of a surplus, right? So your right. energy balance is fluctuating even though your intake is not, you know? So there's a lot of, a lot of um, caveats to that, you know, influencers. So, yeah, I used to just do it pretty much every day, you know, the best I could. Um, we're kind of back to Phil's usual suggestions, you know, about just 
plow the calories of, of all kinds and uh, until you get to your body weight goal and then try to hold it there for a while, you know, so. Yeah, I found if I have someone who just doesn't know what it's like to eat, I'll just give them like the, the stupid simple plan of, you know, they're at 3,500 calories, you know, train as much as you can and just do this every day. You know, I won't move right. them up or down at all because I just want just brutal consistency. Yeah. Yep. You know, that's usually a lot of times the hardest thing. Behavioral. And then, yeah. yeah, if it's someone who's a little bit more advanced and, yeah, they're maybe a little bit more worried about body comp or maybe they've got some little bit wonky glucose insulin type stuff, then I'll probably do a little bit more staggered. And like you said, the simplest thing I'll do is usually drop their pre and post uh, carbohydrate amount and just have meat more protein and a little bit more carbs and fat with each meal. But their kind of off day from the gym will be a little bit lower calories per se than. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk about recovery and sleep and whatnot. Like, I don't want to get into a bunch of like proactive recovery models. I mean, those are very important. We've had whole episodes on them, you know, um, foam rollers and stretching and hot tubs and sauna. We talked about a lot of that stuff. All that proactive stuff is really good if you're training your ass off. Yeah. Uh, even if it's just twice a week, but very heavy, or if it's high-frequency training, whatever it is, you're going to need to recover. Uh, but I wanted to focus on sort of the sleep ritual. It's something that's so often under-focused upon. Uh, but getting eight or nine hours of sleep, uh, that sounds like a lot. But I remember, Phil, sometimes we used to joke back in the day about uh, like a PR for sleep. You know, like yeah. I slept, I slept 11 freaking hours, you know, something like that. But if you can get your eight hours of sleep, there was actually a meta-analysis done a few weeks ago, and I don't have the author's name in front of me for this one, so take it with a grain of salt. But they were saying as far as brain aging, seven hours of sleep seemed to be the sweet spot. I thought that was interesting. It's a little lower than I would have thought. But mm. um, if you're get, to get your eight or nine, like I'll take a melatonin. Actually, I just take half of a three milligram melatonin. Um, it work, just seems to work best for me personally. I've known people that have to take a five milligram, you know, dose, but I'll do that. And this is really on your tip, Mike, not at bedtime, right? But yeah. about an hour before <laughs> bedtime, you know, something like that. But I'll take a half a melatonin uh, if I'm really having a hard time sleeping, whether it's from stress, from work, or overtraining, because overtraining can make it hard to get to sleep. Um, but I'll... Kelly's trick, my wife's trick with a lot of clients because it tends not to interact with a lot of their um, meds, you know, as far as cognition and all that kind of stuff, but is chamomile. I'll double bag mm. chamomile tea, uh, and it makes me very sleepy. If I take a half a melatonin and two chamomile, uh, sometimes I'll take a, a zinc magnesium before I go to bed. Sometimes if I overdo the caffeine earlier in the day, I'll get sort of a restless leg sort of thing, and the magnesium seems to help. Uh, but the point is... I'll, I'll do that like literally at 8 p.m. I'll start this process at 8 p.m. And you, you might laugh at that. Like, my God, you're you're so old. <laughs> you know? Get but, up early, though, man. But, yeah, then you get and then, yeah, if you're going to get up early and do your pre-breakfast walks, which actually that's getting ahead of us. But if you are putting on fat around your belly faster than you'd like or your butt or your hips, depending on your gender and your hormones, you know, that half hour walk every morning before breakfast could be a fat specific calorie drain that could help you during a bulking phase, I, I would argue. But yeah, um, and then uh, a ready to drink at your bedside might be good, too. So those things that don't have to be refrigerated now are they're just golden. 
you know, um, there's various ones, and you know I've talked about them in the past, Mike, but having one of those next to your bedside. So if I drink a cup of chamomile before I go to sleep, sometimes I have to pee. In fact, often I have to pee. I, I've heard clinical rule of thumb. If you have to get up to pee once during the night, don't sweat it. But if you have to get up twice or more, there might be some issues there, you know, hmm. um, from either urine production or maybe prostate or, or whatever. Uh, again, just a crude rule of thumb. But I usually get up around, I don't know, 2 a.m. So if you're desperately trying to gain weight, and when I was bulking for my last run of competitions there a few years ago, I did this. I would roll over and slam some kind of uh, like a whey casein blend. Um, you know, it's just it's another meal snuck in there. Some people talk about the need for gut rest and that sort of thing. But w when you're, you know, in a 20 week bulking phase, damn it, you know, gut rest be damned. <laughs> bring it in. Bring, you know, just take it in. My brother used to say, just take it in. So re ready to drink at your bedside, uh, you know could be handy either protein or protein and carbs protein carbs fats whatever there's there really just the spoilage thing i don't think i'd want to drink something that was very protein in fluid that sat out for six hours but yeah you know um anyway so thoughts on sleep and recovery and their links to nutrition yeah yeah i mean briefly i mean sleep is huge especially for insulin uh sensitivity recovery on a practical side i tell people just as if you can just keep going to bed earlier and earlier. I mean, I've got some data from the Aura Ring now, and I've got some stuff from the old Zio, and I have seen that if people go to bed earlier, for the most part, you can get into different chronotypes and stuff like that, but for the most part, if people go to bed earlier, it appears like their sleep patterns are much better, um, and most people can't change the time that they get up anyway, so the only way they're going to get more time in bed and more sleep is to go to bed earlier. Um, there's a super cool study I <clears throat> sent out to my newsletter a couple of weeks ago from uh, Camera DM uh, 2018 uh, anabolic heterogeneity following resistance training a role for circadian rhythm. Hmm. This is in uh, Frontiers in Physiology 2018, and the short version of that is that when they went back and looked at all these studies and training interventions, you've got some people that are hyper responders and some poor bastards in the bottom that don't respond at all. Yeah, yeah. And their argument was, and they presented some pretty cool data, that maybe it's the difference in sleep. So maybe those people are just not sleeping enough, therefore they're not recovering enough, and they're just not seeing the gains from that particular program. So I thought that was like super fascinating. I often, and, Mike, for what it's worth, I often when yeah. I write a conclusion section, of a presentation or a paper or something, I'll always point out that limitation of the study, right? That we did not, totally. we, we ask people, even with the coffee research, did you yeah. sleep similarly to last time? You know, because they come in one day on decaf, one day on water, yep. one day on coffee. Did you sleep similarly? But I'm not really logging that and I can't control how well they slept, right? So right. it's just a, a huge limitation. Yeah, and I think hopefully with, you know, devices like the Aura and other things, it may be able to, you know, a way for researchers to quantify that because obviously people are going to be sleeping most likely outside the lab. We're not going to be able to contain them for 12 weeks to sleep in the lab and cost and everything else. Um, yeah, and then before bed, have some type of a ritual, you know, having the lights darker, cooler, all that kind of good stuff. For mass gain, one of my favorite things is to add some type of, like, casein uh, protein to, like, ice cream. So I'll add like a driven nutrition, like their chocolate casein to uh, Moose Tracks ice cream. Cool. I stole that tip from uh, Dr. Kenneth J. We were 
we were doing that when we were down in Florida last year. Sounds so fun, actually. Um, <laughs> and it tastes it tastes pretty good, actually. Yeah. You get you know your forty grams of slow acting protein. You get a few more calories. It's kind of a a nice way to relax at the end of the day. So I like that. I found that that works um, pretty good. But yeah, I mean, sleep in general is just one of those areas that people will do pretty good on other stuff. But I've noticed if their sleep is quite poor or pretty bad that it just kind of throws a big monkey wrench into everything. It's one of the reasons why as much as I like coffee, um, and I'd have to actually think about my intake. I haven't recorded my own diet lately, but I probably get six cups of coffee a day, like eight ounce versions, you know, coffee. If I overdo it, it's going to mess with my sleep. Even if I do get to sleep, and you've talked about that before too, like energy drinks, you know, if you like your monster, you know, what a Red Bull, you just have to be careful and get that under control because, you know, that's part of the Iron Radio plan, folks. You've got to get, find a way either through the tips we've given or whatever to get your ass to sleep uh, if you want to, if you really want to grow. So, um, yeah. supplements, let's do one last thing uh, and hopefully we'll have a chance to hear from Phil. Um, some of these can go back to the amino acid based things like leucine. You know, I think as long as you get your scoop of whey uh, with your protein intake, that's pretty much handled. Uh, one caveat to that might be if you do have car snacks and you're eating, I used to put a box of like a, you know, a, a dried fruit, higher fat kind of cereal between my car seats and I would just eat them. It might be good to swish down a little bit of leucine. If you're going to pop your, you know, uh, branch chains or something, that might be the time you could do it. Again, there's that interesting research that, you know, getting a, a three grams or so of leucine with a protein meal with as little as six grams of protein in it. You could actually yeah. get almost a full scoop of protein anabolic effect from that. So it might be good to add it to those uh, car snacks or gym bag snacks that are just a little dab of protein from nuts and seeds or whatever, you know, grains, uh, and just increase increase the quality. That might be one supplement I like. Creatine, there's interesting data. Um, and I've seen some stuff recently that they're actually questioning uh, some of the anabolic effects or some of the benefits of creatine, which I found very really? odd. Yeah, at the NSCA meeting this year, I'd have to pull it up. Huh. Um, but the title was called something about lack of effect. And I'm like, how can you say that? Like, there are like 400 papers. Yeah, that makes no sense to me. <laughs> anyway, so I'm sure it was an attention grabber. But the point being is that's one that I would go for. Uh, Tarnopolsky suggested it early, and it did pan out like most of the things he suggests, which yeah. is, <laughs> you know, um, get yourself that five grams or so, three to five grams of creatine. I put um, – actually half a tablespoon, not a full tablespoon in my morning coffee, uh, almost every morning, just for cognitive, neural, you know, keep my muscles full, that kind of stuff. Uh, that's a trick. Uh, but creatine, if you really want to load immediately and get that, you know, fluid shifts and get swole <laughs> quickly, mm-hmm. you know, there's all there's the whole tablespoon four times a day kind of thing. That'd be four, five grams, four times, that's 20 grams per day. Um, but supplements... Uh, like leucine, creatine, maybe a stimulant. Although, again, I really just like good old coffee because it doesn't wreck your insulin sensitivity or your glucose tolerance, at least not chronically. Uh, but any thoughts you might have, Mike, on supplements? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with all those. I mean, I would probably throw in possibly a mixed multivitamin. Again, usually I'm not as worried about that if someone's on a, a masking you know, type phase. Uh, fish oil, which we're you know big fans of. I guess the only other two that maybe a little bit more 
esoteric, probably not so much anymore, is uh, turmeric or turmeric. Yeah. Uh, more yep. for the possible inflammation effects. Um, some of the neuro effects, I mean, especially if I'm working with someone who's older, I do wonder about constantly locking up carbohydrates, you know, pretty high. If I can get a continuous glucose monitor date on them, we can see when they kind of overshoot. That day is coming. Uh, most people you won't know. be able to do that, but it's getting to the point where I think that technology in the next couple of years is going to be pretty common. It'll yeah. just be a Bluetooth thing through your phone. So that'll be pretty cool to see when you're kind of yes. overshooting and kind of beyond saturation, yep. you know, especially if they've got any history of neurodegenerative type stuff and they're a little bit older. Um, in that same area, uh, mixed cannabinoids or hemp oil, there's some very impressive data on that from a neuroinflammation standpoint and just possibly whole body inflammation. Uh, there's different products you can get that have that. Um, they can ship to all 50 states. The THC is less than, I think, like 0.3%. That's not anything you're going to really feel anything from, per se, but uh, some pretty impressive uh, data on that. Hey, so, Mike. So probably the only other two I would add. So would that also affect your appetite? Or no? I don't know. The data on that is pretty mixed. It, it appears the THC is probably the main driver yeah, for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, if you've got someone who's in a state where that's legal and they just, you know, can't seem to, to eat enough, then, you know, that may be an option too. We'll have to add that to our Iron Radio plan if it becomes legal, uh, yeah. more legal. Uh, yeah. Induced munchies. <laughs> Appetite stimulants historically yeah. are a joke. You know, they oh, don't, yeah, they, horrible. it's like the only thing that's come along that's almost certainly going to give you the munchies so you can get up to that, you know, 4,000 calories a day or whatnot if you have a hard time with it. Yeah. 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 It'd be gold. Um, last tip uh, would be cooking. We kind of alluded to a lot of this, but let's face it. The kitchen is where the rubber hits the road. I mean, as far as recipes are the link between all this thing, all these things that we're discussing, these plans and actual implementation right you have to actually act on these things for them to work for you so um we've already mentioned like glugging olive oil into your chicken and vegetables in the evening fantastic right all it's it's there's really no downside to that you can easily get dozens and dozens of grams one tablespoon right 14 grams of fat so you can get lots of calories from olive oil glugging it into your stir fries in the evening we talked about heavy whipping cream. That's actually, I'm on a real heavy whipping cream kick lately, ever mm, since the Irish so coffee. Oh, <laughs> damn. So good. Um, but yeah, getting oils into your into the diet, into the kitchen would be good. Um, if you fry eggs in the morning, you know, you can use butter. I mean, I, I'm not going to have anybody, oh, that's saturated fat. Well, listen, we're talking about a 20-week huh. probably balls-of-the-wall weight gain session. Let that go for a little bit. <laughs> Because if you're worried about cardiovascular disease and you're a 28-year-old trying to put on yeah. mass, you are you're going to be one of those, like you said, clean gainers that aren't going to go anywhere. Yeah. You know, so um, yeah, putting stuff the oils in the pan whenever you fry something uh, is a great way to do that. Um, I don't know any kitchen tips, Mike. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times a blender is your friend. Yeah. You know, a lot of times blending drink. stuff up because you can drink more calories, and it's an easy way to sneak some fat in there, too. Uh, we got a, a Vitamix as a gift a year and a half ago now, and it's freaking amazing. I don't make any money from them, but maybe they should sponsor me. Um, <laughs> I actually carried it around. We're out here in South Dakota, and we're headed out to Montana and Hood River, and we actually brought it with us because <laughs> we wow. drove. Wow, <laughs> that's a yeah, um, endorsement. Yeah, so that works well. 
Um, other tips that I found that works good, like if you're making a lot of potatoes or sweet potatoes, you can bake just a crap ton of them in the oven at once and just keep them in the fridge with the peels on and then just take them out, heat them, and the peels will just fall right off. So super easy for prep. Um, the other one that's super nice too is about yeah, a year and a half ago now maybe, I got a just a smaller rice cooker off of Amazon. Mm. Got a stainless steel thing, non-Teflon for 34 bucks. So if you can, you know, make up a fair amount of you know, rice ahead of time, or I put oats in it and other stuff, mm-hmm. and it just makes it super easy. You just throw it in, throw the water, hit start, and then you can keep the leftover in the fridge. But I found that rice was like a really good carbohydrate for a lot of people. It's yeah. very inexpensive. We bought a freaking 15-pound organic thing of rice from Costco for 20 bucks. Or Digestible. Something. Very cheap. Yeah. Yeah, it's easy to control portions, all that kind of stuff. Um, But I found I just didn't allow myself the time to actually cook it. So having a rice cooker was was super useful for that. Yeah, Kelly is on a slow cooker kick, right? Oh, yeah, those are good, too. And she's got a pressure cooker. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. and so you can make stuff. like It's almost like pre-prep because you make a bucket. A bucket yeah. of you know rice or oats, like steel cut oats. You could do all this kind of stuff, but pre prep and then put it in the fridge where you could just grab it. You know, just reach in and grab it. It is, uh, yeah, solid gold. I'm actually on a potatoes kick since Ireland. Um, it's so easy to take a potato, and the red skinned ones have a little lower glycemic index, right? If you're interested in that, but the brown skinned ones are good. Yams are good. The old bodybuilder staple. But you can nuke these things in like you know three or four minutes, and then. There it is. There's your carb. You know, it's a quality carb. It's portioned. Yeah, but rice and potatoes are some of my favorite carbs right now, actually. Uh, yeah. So you want to get super uber geeky, which, you know, up to you, uh, by changing the amount of resistance starch by how often you heat and cool them like rice and potatoes will actually change glycemic index massively, too. Isn't that so. interesting? I once I yeah, first saw that. Yeah, I was given a talk up at uh, up in Toronto uh, for Pete for Dr. Lemon, and um, yeah, I, we were talking about storage. The whole thing was about food storage, and I was like, you know, look at this. You can even do that with toast. You could put a loaf of bread in the freezer, mm-hmm. and then when you make you put it, make a sandwich or make toast, oh, look, the glycemic index is lower just because you froze it. It's very interesting stuff. So that idea, everybody, would be that slower entry into the, in the blood, your blood sugar doesn't spike quite as high, especially if you like your white refined carbs, uh, could be better. Could give your body a chance to use it a little bit better, you know, than just um, sort of overspill, if you will, or just getting massive blood sugar swings and insulin swings or whatnot. So, um, okay, so there it is: calories, uh, all the macros, right? Proteins, carbs, and fats. We talked about timing a little, sleep, supplements, a few cooking and kitchen tips. I promise you, you if you comply with everything that we just talked about. Uh, you know, always tweaking based on your yourself. At least, you know, consider. These are considerations. We're not telling you to go do these things. Everybody's different, right? A medical disclaimer. But these are tried and true ways that you will gain mass, and it's going to be a lot more effective than if you go drop $80 on a weird little bottle of some specialty supplement, you know, and hope that's going to make you huge because it's not. Yeah. My last comment on that is I remember asking John Barry years ago, I said, well, what do you do with all these like super, and that was myself, skinny people who just, I seem to keep, you know, increasing more calories and I think my metabolism goes up and I can't really gain any weight. And he's like, well, just keep eating because 
at some point you will out-eat your metabolism. It's, yes. it's not going to go up forever. <laughs> right. Yeah, my formulation of that was always you can't defy the laws of physics forever, right? right. Eventually there will yep. be more energy and nutrients flowing into the system than you could possibly burn. You will gain, and you will gain muscle yeah. mass, at least some. Yeah. You know, and again, maybe a 70-30 muscle-to-fat ratio, that's a huge win folks. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> right? You can't, it's not going to be 100% muscle mass. You're going to end up like those twigs who have eaten clean their whole life. They look lean, but they're 150 pound men, and that's not very big. You know? And they don't change that much, so. Yeah. I'm um, even at the point where I'll take a 50-50 gain. You know? Because yeah. for me, to gain muscle is way harder than to lose up to a point. I mean, Definitely. To get very lean is harder, but you know, so find out whatever ratio is going to be acceptable to you also is going to be useful to know going into it. Yep. When Fortress was up around 300, uh, there's been a few times in his career he's been over three. And I actually asked him, how fat are you willing to get to keep adding muscle yeah. mass? You know, <laughs> uh, and to and to get he wanted to get like, a, I think, a 750 natural raw squat, which is that's big, man. And I'm like, oh, and, yeah. and he was basically starting to look like a sumo wrestler. I'm like, Rob, how big <laughs> are you going to get? And he's like, it's just about the strength, brother, you know? So I, I can appreciate that. I don't want that for myself, but I, I understand. It's, it just it illustrates what we're talking about, you know, that some of it will be lean mass, you know, just from the huge amounts of eating. Okay, yeah. um, we'll go to Phil here, and then we'll call it a day. And next time, we'll talk about the training and motivation side of mass gain. Hey, everybody. This is Phil. Sorry, I was on the road. I had to coach a lifted a meet, but I'm giving you uh, my top three tips as far as, God, I guess top three, nutrition and recovery um, for mass gain. Um, number one, I'm going to tell you something that we talk about at the gym, um, and this can go both ways, mass gain or losing weight, but uh, basically it's we call it eating like an asshole, so I haven't met anybody that I would consider has made it to a very impressive level of strength or size that during long periods of their life they didn't just eat like an asshole. Meaning, basically, what we mean by that is just eating to gain weight at all costs and training hard. Um, and generally, if you have somebody that's obese, most likely they're eating like an asshole. So what we do is have them stop eating like an asshole. But... <laughs> um, you know, I've got a couple of my guys doing it now. And, uh, you know, one guy had never broke 200 pounds in his life, and now he's like 213. And, uh, but, uh, you got to eat. You got to fuel the machine. If you're training your balls off, training balls out, and, uh, just go and eat and, and try and gain 20 pounds, 30 pounds, whatever. Get out there, train hard, eat hard. And then number two is sleep. And this is something that I didn't get right for a long time, uh, just because of life. Life was in the way. But I think too many people don't don't understand how important sleep and rest is. Uh, probably more so, or at least as important as the training. So, if you train really hard, you need to rest really hard and, and sleep really hard. And that's that's one thing I preach in the gym is like we are we are we're not causing progress in the gym. We're causing a stimulus for progress. We're in there beating yourself up. And then the real progress comes outside of the gym when you're eating like an asshole and sleeping and recovering. So uh, sleep and rest is a big one. Just get out and uh, if you're training really hard, make sure you get to bed early. Or if you don't, if you're not an early 
early to bed person, make your make sure you're sleeping in late. I don't care. Whatever's the case for you, whatever fits your schedule, but make sure you get that time. Not staying up too late, not not uh burning too many candles at once if you want to make good progress. Um, I think also moving around. I think uh, it's one of the big things that I got into that I think really pushed me forward was realizing at a point there I think everybody gets new to it and they start thinking. Oh, I'm in the exercise, I'm in the training, and you get wrapped up into, like, almost everything becomes that. Even, like, if you're going out for a hike or something, you're, you're kind of, uh, you're thinking how many calories are burned and things like that. So, I think just some relaxa- relaxing, moving around. Just get out and walk, man. Just get out and do things and be active outside of your gym time. It's going to help you recover. It's going to help you build up your uh, capacity to work and things like that. And I know that kind of goes against my rest thing, but you need to make that time for the rest. But in that other time, when you're not training hard, get out and move around. For me, a lot of that's moving around my farm, things like that, going for walks with the kids. Uh, All of that non-stuff that's not very strenuous, it's going to do nothing but aid recovery. It's going to get blood flow in there, uh, things like that. I think we should move around more. Nobody ever, like... I've never seen any bad data or bad injuries from just just walking and uh, just moving out, walking around, hiking, doing things like that is going to do nothing but uh, aid your recovery and potentially aid your health and everything else. So, again, my top three would be learn to eat like an asshole if you're looking to gain. Um, for me, that's usually I, I stay on a pretty static type of diet year-round. Um, right now, I'm kind of off-season, so I've lost 30 pounds. So I'm just eating the good food. And then at the end of August, I will start eating like an asshole, which means I just eat that normal good food and then I pack everything else on top of it. So in between meals, I'll be picking up snacks and this and that. uh, But I keep that base of good food and then you cram in the bad stuff or so-called labeled bad, but uh, the calorically dense stuff in between. Uh, I'll make sure I get to bed early. Uh, I try and get like on my weekends, my, my weeks are busy, so I'll try and sleep in a little bit more on weekends and things like that. Uh, and move around, you know, get up and walk. For me, I'm on my feet all day, so that's good. I've changed to a stand-up desk so numerous years ago, and that, that was huge for me. It helps with my hips and everything else, the tightness. And, uh, basically, I'm on my feet from 5 a.m. till 8 o'clock when we're done at the gym. So walking around, moving around, coaching, things like that. I think the more you can do that, the better. Uh, just don't find yourself sitting down too much and, and things like that. It'll just really lock you up. So, all right, thanks. Bye. Hey, listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So, you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal if you need something to learn or read or something nutritional you can look in my store uh, Lonnie's store if you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron and if you want something about motivation or daily training Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron 
are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.